Hi, welcome to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher. This week, sports media. We're going to be talking to Richard Deitch, Sports Illustrated's media critic and an adjunct here at Columbia about the state of sports media. Guiding our conversation, Dave Uberti, CJR's staff writer and a senior Delacorte fellow and a dedicated sports media geek. Hello, David. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. So what are you going to be talking to Richard about? Well, Richard on Thursday released at Sports Illustrated his year-end wrap-up of the best and worst things that were happening in sports media. I'm obviously a sports media geek, as you said, but he's in the digital trenches every day looking at this stuff, looking at ESPN, Fox Sports 1, and what have you, so he can really lead us on a more you know, in-depth discussion. And I'm joined on it with Pete Vernon, who's a Delacorte fellow for CGR and fellow sports fan. Pete, what's up? Thanks for having me, Dave. Pretty excited to talk some sports, too. It's been a... Uh a long few months. Quite a year. Yeah, it's been a year. You know Deitch, right? I had him as a professor, so I'm excited to talk to him now. He knows this as well as anyone. Uh, there's been some great sports reporting out there this year, not just about what happens on the field or the court, but touching on a lot of social and cultural issues. Uh, so I'm excited to ask him about that also. Right. Let's talk to him. And joining us now is our very special guest, Richard Deitch. He's a media writer at Sports Illustrated. Uh, his columns every week are must-reads, and he's a must-follow Twitter feed as well. Uh, Richard, thanks for joining us. I mean, are you really super excited? I would say he's <laughs> more of like sort of a moderate excited. I guess I, I would say I'm probably a 7 out of 10 right now, but I'm, I'm hoping wow. to be proven wrong. All right, let's calm down. Don't, don't <laughs> So you alluded to on Twitter earlier this week. This is this is Wednesday when we're taping. Uh, this podcast will come out on Thursday. But you, you put together, you did the yeoman's work of putting together a year-end list, sort of listing out some of the best moments, best performances, individual or team performances in sports media in 2016. So, I mean, what, what were some of your, like, broad takeaways of, like, the good, the bad, and the ugly for uh, sports media watchers? Yeah, well, so every year at uh, Sports Illustrated, I do an end-of-the-year awards piece as well as the sort of the best things I've read this year. The awards piece comes out this week. And that's basically just, um, it's more positive than negative in terms of um, in terms of taking a look at people who really did exceptional work, probably more heavy on sports television than everything else. Right. And just gives, uh, you know, readers a sense of, um, of who really sort of grinded and put in the time. Uh, my media person of the year is, it might be sort of fairly obvious to a lot of people, it's more of a recognition than anything else, that'd be Vince Scully mm. for uh, ending his 67-year run as the voice of the Dodgers, uh, retiring one month before he turned 89. And, you know, obviously, I wouldn't say arguably, but the most beloved figure in baseball, including players and uh, ex-players, et cetera. And the one thing about Scully that stands out is that elegance is not really something we see so often in sports broadcasting these days, you know, mm-hmm. the year, uh, the year is more, uh, like, you know, fallacy and then, uh, than the bard, <laughs> so, uh, you know, Scully like reminds us like whether it's real or not, like, you know, a time when, you know, poetry was sort of part of the nomenclature of sports. Todd Blackledge and Holly Rowe got broadcast team of the year for me and, uh, Otto Bolton, Rowdy Gaines for their really fine work at the Olympics. Uh, analyst of the year. Pardon my take of Barstool Sports. It's my podcast of the year. Wow, that mm-hmm. might that might surprise some people. Yeah, uh, maybe not those that have followed your Twitter feed, but certainly uh, some of your readers that might not be familiar with the work that uh, Big Cat and PFT are doing over there. Yeah, you're 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 right on that. Um, 
well, people don't talk enough about that. Yeah, the, the thing about Barstool, well, first of all, for starters, they're, they're an independent media company that has really gotten some significant loyalty traction in the marketplace. And I understand there's a lot of people who are not going to like their content. It's certainly geared towards under 30, really geared towards men more than women. My friends uh, read it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very much, uh, uh, I think, still more Northeast than anything else. Probably a lot of people and a lot of men in frat. But they're, they're smart, and they've approached their brand really smartly with a great new CEO. And this podcast in particular is just really good because it's so authentic and really funny. It's satire and sort of the, the Chris Bermanization, basically, of NFL coverage. <laughs> and uh, it's just, re- and, you know, not to mention that they get really, really good guests. Yourself um, included. Yeah, I'm not even sort of patting myself on the back. I mean, they've got real guests both NFL players and sort of, you know, really large, well-known media people. And it's just authentic. And, like, that's the thing that I really like about uh, any piece of content, whether it's uh, right. in print or digital or audio. It's just like an authenticity where I feel like you are being really true to the audience. And that's what that podcast is. And they've been rewarded. That, that for an independent company, has been sitting at either number one or number two on the iTunes charts essentially for the last five or six Is it really that high? Wow. Yeah, that's incredible against the distribution giants at ESPN and Fox Sports. I mean, to have a podcast from an independent place like Barstool to be beating um, the giants who have these multiple massive distribution engines is pretty pretty incredible. So I gave them some love. And then the rest of the column is sort of the duds and studs of the year. You know, when you're talking about at the top, like what really stood out, well, the NFL ratings dropping stands out. Uh, I, I updated it as of this week. Every network is down, and the, the networks that have primetime games, NBC, NFL Network, CBS, NBC, ESPN, are way down. Uh, ESPN down 14% for Monday Night Football. NBC Sunday Night Football down 11%. So even though it's come back a little bit, the NFL has really had a, a, a significant down year for ratings. What, ex- what explains it? Wasn't there some speculation that that was in part due to like attention on the presidential campaign, or was that just proven to be just too speculative? No, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of reasons. There's multiple reasons for it. I think the main reason was the election. You could do the numbers and look, and, the, uh, and you guys uh, you know, at CJR have uh, probably done multiple pieces on this, but the cable news networks during the run-up to Election Day were up, I mean, massively, you know, in some cases, uh, triple digits, I right. think, or certainly high double. Yeah. A lot of those uh, increases were in primetime windows where the NFL was played, Monday night, Sunday night, Thursday night. And so the numbers of, I think, men between the ages of 25 and 55 who probably crossed over a little bit to cable news were significant enough to shift that. Obviously, mm. the NFL went up against some presidential debates really hurt those games. So to me, the number one factor for sure was the election, but it goes beyond that. There are not enough good teams to play in all the national windows this year, so right. you, you create some gluts there. The play on the field for many weeks was not good. It was not a very good product. If you don't have a great product, I think you're going to turn off some people. Right. Uh, another big one is NFL is a marketing star quarterback league. You know, right. Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady, Cam Newton versus Peyton Manning. Like, that's how these games are marketed. And you lost Peyton Manning this year. You didn't have Tom Brady for four games. You didn't have Tony Romo for most of the year. Cam Newton has not had a good year. And you have a couple of rookie quarterbacks, particularly the number one draft pick, Jared Goff, who was no factor. When you don't have quarterbacks who you can sort of market around, the product is not, I think, going to get as many eyeballs 
as it would when you have that. The NFL is very lucky that the Cowboys, their most historically most watched television team, had such a great year because if you took the Cowboys away from the ratings this year, uh, the ratings really story would be horrible in the NFL. Hmm. So I think it's a number of factors. I think um, fantasy has ebbed a little bit. I think that's a factor. There's not as many. There were not even close to as many ads this year with the daily fantasy stuff, DraftKings and FanDuel. I think that took a little bit away. Uh, from the league, so I, th- I think there's like seven or eight factors, with the main factor being the election. But I think in terms of sports media, singularly, th- that's one of the major stories of the year. ESPN losing or continuing to lose. Uh, right. I, I, I wanted to get into yeah. I wanted to get into ESPN a little bit. Pete and I were just talking right before you called in. I can't even tell you how many times I watched like Stuart Scott go through Sports Center uh, broadcasts. Like I would watch that like twice a day, like just to see highlight reels and whatnot. Now, I mean, I, I'm a cord cutter. I know a lot of people my age have, you know, gone away from cable news or broadcast news or whatever. I don't really know what's going on at ESPN. So, I mean, like, what's what's sort of the state on ESPN? I, I periodically hear that they're sort of hemorrhaging subscribers and having some trouble sort of adapting to a new business model. But what's what's like the state of play for them right now? Well, I mean, again, you got to keep in mind that the, their business is still phenomenal. Right. Um, you know, this is <laughs> this is not the you know. Sisterhood of the Poor, basically, we're talking about, <laughs> right. about a billion-dollar company. But they have issues, and they're not the ATM they used to be, and they have lost, in the last five years, about 10 million subscribers, and they would say a lot of that is age and falling off, but I don't think there's a systematic shift at play here. People like yourself who just don't get cable or, um, or people who are stealing passwords from their parents so they don't have to foot the bill on cable. <laughs> right. Their move is, is sort of what they've been doing. They want to gobble up as many high-quality live sports rights as they can, college football playoffs, in this case, lately the Big Ten, they just re-signed with the NBA, and they believe that if we have these premium products that you can't get anywhere else, they will figure out what the distribution engine is or where to do it, whether it's digital, whether it's direct-to-consumer, you know, whatever the model is going to be, they feel that if they have the rights, they can ultimately solve the distribution Problem and they, or or you know proposition and they may be correct. So the, you know the question is going to be, you know, ten years from now, does ESPN come some, become something like uh, iTunes, where you know you log on to ESPN every morning and if you want to watch that game, you pay fifty cents like that that day, or do they become like direct to consumer, where all right, if I want ESPN, I'm going to pay twenty five dollars a month for my ESPN. I wouldn't even call it a channel, but let's say like my ESPN password, which allows me to watch it on my phone my iPad, my whatever device gets created in the next 10 years kind of thing. Mm. So I, I think they'll, the business will not be nearly as profitable as it once was, but it will still be profitable. And I still think they're in a very strong, dominant position compared to their, you know, compared to their competitors. They just they own too many rights and they have sort of too much bank at the moment for them not to be a major factor. But it's not 1996 anymore. Right. And, you know, you're not rushing home to watch SportsCenter because you haven't seen the highlights. Those, those days are never coming right. back. You we know, have you gifts have for smart, that. Yeah. yeah, you have a smartphone now, and you can essentially, the second somebody dunks in a game, you know, there's going to be a gift like five seconds later. It's just the world has changed on that stuff. So they have to adapt, and I think they will adapt. And, I, again, if you ask me, like, to bet on one sports cable company that will be around 30 years from now, my bet would still be it. Richard, you mentioned that ESPN is still going to be here, but right now isn't as profitable as it once was. And along with the live sports, along with the talking head shows, ESPN also does some great journalism. 
And one of the kind of truisms, whether or not it was actually true, was something people would repeat, is that, well, First Take pays for outside the lines. If First Take and SportsCenter are not as profitable anymore, if there are not as many subscribers, do you worry at all about some of the perhaps less profitable but more journalistically inclined? Yeah, more journalistically inclined personalities and, and ventures there coming into some amount of trouble going forward or maybe hitting the chopping block? Um, I'm not sure so sure first take pays for outside the lines. I think more you pay for outside the lines when you're paying your seven plus okay. uh, dollars for an ESPN subscription. But I understand the point. You know, ultimately the network has to get eyeballs. That's their job. And so they've always tried to balance between, you know, news and journalism, which costs a lot of money, versus some of these studio shows, which relatively do not. You know, you just need a studio, which you already have at ESPN, and that's what you got to do. you got to pay for talent. That's it. That's relatively cheap, given what you can make on those shows. They've made a commitment, uh, a long-term one, to be a news operation. And I don't think that's going to change. The big question will be, what is their commitment to the kind of investigative journalism that they've done on E60, Outside the Lines, and some of their really, really good writers that they have? I believe as long as John Skipper's in charge, I think that commitment remains. I, don't, I think they're down the road so far, and they've sort of established themselves as that kind of brand. That, that's not going to change. When Skipper leaves, I don't know. That's a great question. It will depend, obviously, on who else is sort of in that leadership position at ESPN. You know, Bob Lee leaving outside the lines, that'll be sort of a, a moment in the sand for that network. He's, he's been the soul, essentially, of that show and maybe even ESPN journalism as a whole and has a lot of juice, and I don't think they'd pull that show until he retired. So that would be another one to watch, like what happens when he leaves. So I'm confident that over the, in the near term, Journalism there is going to continue, and you know, keep in mind how many journalists they employ around the country. Right, and they're, huge. And they're you know, their NFL nation and their NBA writers. So I, I think, you know, they 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 they've established themselves as the premier news sports news leader in the U.S. And I I don't see in the near term for sure them giving up on that. But you guys know this at CJR, journalism is expensive. It's a lot more expensive <laughs> than bloviating. Right. You do need leaders to sort of make that investment because I. I think reputationally it does a lot for ESPN, you know. It, it gives them some gravitas where shows like First Take and other debate shows do not. Right, right. Uh, you know, you, speaking of journalism being expensive, the other, the other uh, you know, topic I wanted to get your take on was local sports journalism. We talk a lot of, at CJR about the cratering of, obviously, the business model for uh, Metro newspapers in particular. Right. You know, that's how, when I was growing up and my parents still, that's how they get a lot of their news about whatever, the Detroit Tigers or the Detroit Red Wings or, I mean, what... I mean, what's your sort of take on, on the state of that right now, local sports media? And, and, and how do you think broader shifts in the industry, the atrophy of, of local media generally, how does that change what we understand about sports or how we look at sports? That's a good question. I mean, what it definitely will change is it changes any, it changes the dynamic and investment on investigative pieces in sports. So you have less people to look into taxpayer finance stadiums. Right. You have less people to look into criminality among sports teams. You have you have less people to look into uh, sexual assault, sexual uh, harassment uh, on college campuses that may involve the athletic department. You, have, you basically just, it's a reduction of, of watchdog capabilities in local towns. Now, I think that even with newspapers cratering and they will sort of continue to fold, 
you should still always have information sources in those cities. Most likely they will be online. And then the question is, can they find a business model where you can pay people a decent wage so you can get some good reporters there to do that kind of work? But it's just like um, in any major city that has declining newspaper subscriptions. I mean, I'm talking to you in New York, so this would be one. Right. You, you end up just losing people who cover uh, beats like city hall, sure. state government, or local government, and in the end, it's a lesser check on corruption. So I would just extend that to sports, and what's lost is is the real long-term, hard investigative work. There'll always be people to sort of cover a game or to tell you uh, who's playing well, who's not, what trade may or may not be happening, but that's the position that ultimately doesn't get filled when newspapers are really cutting to the bone. Right. At least in sports. Right. You had, an, you had an interesting column recently. It was sort of like a more panel type discussion where you're pulling people in sports media on their use of social media and how they do or do not talk about politics in their social media feeds. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I do like following you on Twitter is you do sort of engage in that discussion. You talk, you share news articles uh, that, that relate to politics and current events, not just sports. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious on, on where like how you think about that topic, broadly speaking, and you know whether there's an actual rift within sports media over whether to do this, and if so, like what the broad schools of thought on that are. Well, there's always a risk when you talk politics or go away from sports on sports feed if you're in the sports industry, because there's always going to be a group of people out there who want you to, you know, for lack of a better phrase, sports. That's right. Uh, and that you can, you should respect that opinion. Do people want sports as an escapism? They don't want politics to mix, and I understand that. I'm somebody who just could not, DNA-wise, could not do that. I think sports are political, whether it's issues of gender, issues of race. You know, again, we just talked before about sort of issues of economics. I mean, if what the Chargers are, what's happening with the Chargers in Las Vegas, Los Angeles, that's all political. I mean, it's really, to me, it's, it's sort of part and parcel of the other. So I, I subscribe to the, the what Sports Illustrated allows us to do, and that's to sort of uh, tweet or say whatever we want about any subject, but be adults about it and don't put the organization in a bad place. Uh, there's a lot of organizations that have, you know, they have social media policies where you are not allowed to talk about anything politically. Right. Uh, USA Today very famously, not too long ago, sent out an email basically sort of saying that, particularly with the heated talk and divisiveness around the election. So there's a risk. Uh, if you tweet out, let's just keep it to politics. If you're a sports person who tweets out political thoughts or political stories, you are going to get inevitably very quickly backlash from that, both from somebody who may disagree with the POV as well as someone who doesn't like you tweeting about politics. So you, you have to, you gotta, you gotta have some thick skin because you're gonna <laughs> some stuff back. You're gonna lose followers and potentially lose readers. You may gain some too, but it's um, it's not for the faint of heart because it's it's not it it inevitably is always going to create passion and response. You're also going to have to deal with the stigma somehow that if you work in sports, you're not supposed to be talking about politics. It seems like in the last couple of years, uh, whether it's from the athletes themselves taking a more activist role. Uh, or just stories covering a topic like domestic violence or race uh, that we've seen sports expand beyond the field, the court, whatever it might be, and more and more reporters not sticking to sports. Do you think that's a good thing for the industry? Do you think that it's something that newspapers, outlets, television stations, whoever it is, are going to continue to um, encourage and push? Because it does seem like sports has entered a larger conversation culturally, politically, and socially over the last, you know, certainly this past year. 
Well, that's a good question. I, I don't know if it's positive or negative. I think I would just answer that, that it's reality. And I think a newspaper or an outlet should cover reality. So I think you're not doing your readers or your constituency a service if you avoid it. Um, you're, in fact, doing a disservice if you – if LeBron James says something about Black Lives Matter or police shootings or the election, I think you have a duty or an obligation to your readers to let them know what he's saying. I also obviously think that could be very interesting and compelling coverage, opinion writing, et cetera. But, again, it sort of gets back to what we said on a personal basis. Oh, you could potentially alienate readers who don't want that as part of their sports coverage. And that's what all these sports editors, particularly at smaller papers or certain locales, have to deal with. Because they do have a lot of readers who don't want those two worlds mixing. Like I said, personally, I don't know how you can avoid it, but I, as a business proposition, it would give some sleepless nights to people who start getting threats of subscriptions being uh, declined or ended if that kind of coverage continues. Just to, I mean, rephrase... I guess Pete's question in a little bit different way. Do you think sports are getting more political, or do you think we're just noticing more now? I think probably both, but the latter more because the social media means have given people an easy real-time platform right. to express this. That's what's right. changed. In 1974, if uh, Reggie Jackson, I'm making this up, if Reggie Jackson wanted to offer an opinion about the president, he had really one vehicle, two vehicles, right? He could go to the local newspaper, or he can go to the newspapers that cover him, or he could get an interview locally, or maybe like ABC or something would come out and try to interview. In 2016, any athlete has his own Twitter feed, Instagram feed, Facebook, team website, local press. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the. The distribution means, not to mention his own website, the distribution possibilities are endless. And because of the web, we're also inundated with more information than we've ever been inundated before. So I think it's, I think you are just inundated with more of this stuff in 2016, as well as I think we are a little bit more political. I mean, right. I don't know how we couldn't be given the, the last 16 months and given sort of what's going on in this country. I think there are athletes who know they have a voice, know they have some information right. power, and they're putting voice to power. So yeah, I think I, the answer to both questions is yes, but the real reason is, is because of the information availability because of the world. Right. With that dynamic of athletes having sort of their own platforms. I, I, th I think you can obviously make the, the argument that a lot of these guys or gals are media companies in and of themselves. Right. How, how does that sort of change the dynamic for sports journalism? It just allows them to control the message. More, yeah. Both, both the individual athlete as well as the team. And that's just going to continue and grow. You'll see more teams continue to push more original content. A lot of them hired writers to be uh, the sort of the de facto voice of a site. Same thing with individual athletes. You'll see them do uh, their own projects more. You'll see them get involved in content creation and content control. It's not going to eliminate the media. You know, as long as the leagues still have, like, these mandatory times where athletes are talking to the press uh, before games, after games, et cetera, that's not going to change. The access is still going to be there, but the access will continue to get a little bit reduced. And the bigger thing is that individual athletes and teams will continue to try to create original content and control content and control the message. Ultimately, this is a great example of what is different about public relations and journalism. Right. Uh, what what uh, you know, BostonCeltics.com does is PR. Even if they do a piece that sort of you know, takes both sides, it's still PR. What the Globe does is journalism. Both places will exist, but you'll see team and individuals continue, I think, to churn out more content because ultimately it's both financially rewarding as well as uh, the sort of content control is important. 
Before I uh, ask my last question here, I just want to say when you uh, tweeted out the preview of your year-end awards, one of the first responses you got on Twitter was from a guy who calls himself Sloppy Joe, saying that he nominated you for worst media critic of the year, and he misspelled right. your name. Misspelled my name. <laughs> so, nice. yeah, so, I'm saying, so with, with fans like that, I'm just curious, you know, why would you get into this racket, media reporting? Yeah, I will say this, though. I mean, to be, to be very honest, like that, I, I'm actually pretty fortunate on my feed. That, that is an outlier. I... I um, People always ask, like, how hard is social media? Is it bad? It's really not that bad for me. I mean, I'm sort of, I'd say, like, 80, 85, almost 90% positive to negative. Right. It got a, it probably dropped a little bit because certainly I've had more political tweets late in 2016 than not. But it's not, it's not that bad for me, you know, for whatever reason. I think it's because people see I work hard. People see that I'm honest. I'm sure. trying to do stuff in sports media that other people aren't doing. I actually make calls and report. Um, but in terms of just going into it, um, you know, I sort of fell into it at SI. Uh, the magazine, about 10 years ago, had a media page. The person who was writing the media page left, so I started doing a little bit of work on the magazine. And then when I shifted my base to the web, I just pitched them on doing a every other week column in addition to my other responsibilities, which then were special projects editor. And, um, you know, just over the course of time, the, the content people seemed to like. I was helped by the blog sort of revolution, dead spins of the world and places like that, doing a lot of sports media right. that drove page views. And my bosses eventually were like, you know what, this is something that could be a growth area for us. We don't have any formal ties to professional leagues, so we can be independent here. And they've let me run free in the last couple of years, which has been great. So I really enjoyed it. I was, you know, as a kid, like a latchkey kid who grew up on a lot of television and read a lot of newspapers. And <laughs> right. That's kind of where it stemmed from. But mostly um, my boss at Sports Illustrated have really just allowed me a lot of autonomy and a lot of ability to write about and cover what I want. And no doubt, I should say the last thing, social media helped immensely. Um, you know, I've gotten a lot of notice, at least in that space, on Twitter, and that's really helped my metrics and probably people's recognizability of what I do because there's not a lot of people doing it. So right. those are all those factors have just really helped. You know, sort of just help me get a, a readership, whatever that readership is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, we love your work, and uh, me and Pete, uh, in particular, follow it pretty closely in the office. So uh, we appreciate it. You're following it really closely. If you if you t- if you could point out the first troll who nailed me, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I did a deep dive through your Twitter mentions the other day. <laughs> God, God help you. Make sure you take Xanax. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Definitely. 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 There's this there's this troll I've noticed who appears a lot in your mentions, or I guess not as much as he used to, but he goes by the name Darren Rovell. Wow. Yeah, Rovella, you know, we at a certain point we blocked each other, which really helped our relationship because we didn't have to, um, you know, we just didn't have to see each other's content, which I think certainly... Content. Emphasis on content. Hashtag content. In, 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 my, in my case, it was really, really helpful. I don't know about, I don't want to speak for Darren, but uh, yeah, it's not as bad with me and him in the last year as it was previous years. I think a lot of it is because I'm not seeing his stuff every day. And a lot of the stuff that Rovell does would and probably still would bothered me sort of his lack of humanity and how he sort of chooses to do his journalism if that's the right word but uh but yeah we've uh you know we're at the taunt right now it's like uh putin and trump it's a beautiful <laughs> wow <laughs> we didn't expect a putin and trump reference on this pod <laughs> who's who in that analogy uh well, you don't have to answer that don't answer that i think i, I, I guess it's neither of us either guy is my guess all right. Richard Deitch, media writer for Sports Illustrated. Richard, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Keep up the great work at CJR. All right. Thank you. Take care.
That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. We hope you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Also go to cjr.org and sign up for a membership for Columbia Journalism Review. It's 50 bucks a year to support good journalism. You get a few print issues. You get a weekly newsletter written by yours truly and some other special features from our editor and publisher, Kyle, along with the rest of the CJR staff. Thanks again for kicking it with us, and we'll see you in 2017.